purposes. It's the concept of having. This is that identity economics one by Akerlof. People fired up. TQM, or total quality management, similarly aims to encourage workers to take pride in their work and thereby identify with their organization and its missions. The management consultants Thomas Peters and Robert Waterman had described how a company's commitment to customer service and to product quality ultimately pays off. Employees are more motivated when they are proud of the company's products and services. For example, Caterpillar promises to deliver parts for its vehicles and equipment within 48 hours anywhere on the globe. McDonald's instructs employees to throw away fries that are not piping hot. Policies that increase customer satisfaction, according to Peters and Waterman, also enhance workers' self-image and motivate them to accomplish the firm's goals. Some of the most famous... He does. Yeah, well, that's just an example of, of um, one step beyond goal-oriented to mutual participation in uh, a community project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, does it? Masters in industry and commerce have been known for their enthusiasm for instilling company loyalty. Thomas Watson, the CEO of IBM, said, Joining a company is an act that calls for absolute loyalty. John Pepper, the successful CEO of Procter & Gamble, said, We understand that we have joined not just a company, but an institution with a distinguished character and history that we are now responsible for perpetuating. But such loyalty to an institution is apparent not just at the big and famous firms. Yale University's Truman Bewley conducted extensive interviews in Connecticut firms, mostly small, during the recession of the early 1990s. He found that the firms only rarely reduced wages, even though other workers could have been hired at lower pay. Bewley concluded that the firms kept pay high out of concern for workers' capacity to identify with their firm and to internalize its objectives. Hey, does? No, same thought. Down the corporate ladder. Ethnographies show that self-motivation and identification with the firm are important for workers at all levels. The role of identity in the day-to-day lives of wage earners is perhaps the most central finding of ethnographic work. Take the examples of Mike, as told by Studs Terkel, and Shirley, as told by the sociologist Vicki Smith. Terkel's interview with Mike, a laborer in a Cicero, Illinois steel mill, affirms the validity of the model, but in an unexpected place. Mike is an outsider. He dislikes his job intensely, and he feels insulted by his foreman. But he does not want to be unemployed either, so, for the most part, he shows only minor resistance while on the job. He does not even try to think. He refuses to say yes, sir, to his bosses, and occasionally he puts a little dent in the steel to see if it will get by. Even so, his anger builds up, and after work, he gets into tavern brawls. Why? Because all day I want to tell my foreman to go fuck himself, but I can't. Mike's hostile behavior exactly fits the model. He is an outsider. He works, rather than shirks, but only because of the monetary rewards. He loses identity utility because of the gap between the effort he expends and what he ideally would like to do. His off-the-job behavior, in our terminology, is his way to restore his loss of identity utility. This example shows that even... And it does? Yeah, well... I see it more than establishing his own identity. It's it's to establish his way of uh, of confirming his way of thinking. I'm superior 
and I'm not gonna be inferior to my boss. What, what about what about oh, this? Yes. What, what about the stuff that you were saying about like loyalty, like to be loyal to the company and stuff and all that? Important, important stuff. Really, not the identity. Any thoughts? Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's the whole idea of mutual participation in a local project or in a larger project. And making commitments or whatever. Yeah, that's your commitment is to that rather than to being superior and to avoid being inferior. Any yeah, thoughts, No. Pecuniary incentives are all that motivate a worker. Identity does not lie dormant. Its consequences are still visible. Furthermore, the anger Mike expresses and its consequences are predicted by identity economics. But they seem to have no place in current, including behavioral, economics. Shirley, unlike Mike, is an insider. Shirley, an African-American, works for a company Vicki Smith calls Reprico, a subcontractor for on-site clerical and mailroom workers. Recognizing the potential for conflict between its staff and the professionals in the companies it serves, Reprico trains its employees to deal with insults from clients. We see that despite daily insults, Shirley is a motivated worker who takes pride in her position. An exchange at a Philadelphia law firm with a white lawyer illustrates her attitude. When the lawyer expresses her impatience with the time needed to finish a photocopying job, Shirley responds politely, using her calculator to estimate the length of the queue. The lawyer walks off in a huff, telling Shirley, You are always just pushing those little buttons. Shirley, however, maintains her composure. She explains to Vicki Smith, who is watching, that she is a Reprico person. Calling on her work self enables her to keep calm. Had she instead expressed her anger, a low-effort response, according to the model, she would have lost identity utility for failing to live up to her ideal. It does. No. Again, she's expressing her software, which is mutual participation rather than top dog underdog. Every work ethnography we have read tells stories similar to those of Mike and Shirley. Workers either identify with their jobs, like insiders in the model, or they are frustrated, like outsiders in the model, who put in high effort but only to obtain the monetary incentives. Here are two more brief examples. Tom Jurovich writes of a wire factory worker whose in-your-face supervisor denies him permission to buy a new screwdriver to finish a job. In frustration, the worker hammers to pieces a spare part worth hundreds of dollars. And Catherine Newman describes fast food workers in Harlem and Washington Heights, New York, who despite the grease, heat, customer disrespect, and low wages, still take pride in their uniforms. Is there any way to measure the extent to which workers identify with their organizations? The GSS, the General Social Survey, is an annual national survey of demographic and attitudinal variables with a sample size of about 3,000 people. It asks employees about job satisfaction, and the 1991 survey included a module about work organizations. According to our tabulations, 82% of employees disagreed, weakly or strongly, with the statement that they had little loyalty toward their work organization. 78% agreed that their values and those of their... Hey, that's... No. All right, let's check out this one. This one, this was interesting about the <clears throat> about what's his name? Uh, what, what was the leader of uh, Churchill? Ready? Had, had a propensity once drunk for making scenes and thereby posing what his mother Clementine saw as a continual risk. It's called splendid, the splendid in the vial. One day he would cause irrevocable embarrassment to the family. Churchill also had to deal with blackout rules and strict rationing and the mounting intrusion of officials seeking to keep him safe from assassination, as well as, not least, 
the everlasting offense of the army of workmen dispatched to buttress 10 Downing Street and the rest of Whitehall against aerial attack, with their endless hammering, which, more than any other single irritant, had the capacity to drive him to the point of fury. Except... Hey, Dad. No, yeah, he's cultivating that mutual participation in larger projects. Maybe whistling. Listen to this about whistling. What do you think about the rest of Whitehall against aerial attack with their endless hammering, which more than any other single irritant had the capacity to drive him to the point of fury. Except maybe whistling. His hatred of whistling, he once said, was the only thing he had in common with Hitler. It was more than merely an obsession. It sets up an almost psychiatric disturbance in him, immense, immediate, and irrational, wrote Inspector Thompson. Once, while walking together to 10 Downing Street, Thompson and the new Prime Minister encountered a newsboy, maybe 13 years old, heading in their direction. Hands in pockets, newspapers under his arms, whistling loudly and cheerfully, Thompson recalled. As the boy came closer, Churchill's anger soared. He hunched his shoulders and stalked over to the boy. Stop that whistling, he snarled. The boy, utterly unruffled, replied, Why should I? Because I don't like it and it's a horrible noise. The boy moved on, then turned and shouted, Well, you can shut your ears, can't you? The boy kept walking. Churchill was for the moment stunned. Anger flushed his face. But one of Churchill's great strengths was perspective, which gave him the ability to place discrete events into boxes, so that bad humor could, in a heartbeat, turn to mirth. As Churchill and Thompson continued walking, Thompson saw Churchill begin to smile. Under his breath, Churchill repeated the boy's rejoinder. You can shut your ears, can't you? And laughed out loud. Churchill bent at once to his new summons. Any thoughts? Yeah, he, he, uh, he was able to look at his participation in that event and upgrade his software. Yeah, but, but what, what do you think was the reason why he and Hitler didn't like whistling? It doesn't matter so long as you so long as you think of yourself superior. It doesn't matter what the reason is. So he thought himself superior. Yeah. All right. Here's here's that reinventor. I can. Hmm? And, and I can have, I can have my surroundings, my environment, the way I want it. And your whistling is an intrusion intrusion into my preferred environment. Yeah. All right, here's, here's the book, The Reinventors. Ready? The what? We make money. The book, The Reinventors. Ready? That one we were listening to. Offering services for families with pets, McQueen says. But the main thing it allows us to do is reach out, touch people's hearts, and begin building a relationship with them so we can help them with a the future loss. McQueen says he was heavily influenced by the book, The Experience Economy, by B. Joseph Pine and James H. Gilmore whose thesis is that we've moved from being an agrarian economy to one based on industry and now to an experience economy in which our lives are filled with memorable branded experiences. Every business, McQueen says, needs to turn what they do into a sufficiently memorable experience that people would be willing to pay admission to be part of it. The experience... Any thoughts? Yeah, people are always looking for... When you're exposed to a an upgraded software setting um it has an appeal but you you would say that some of it is is not good like you know the, the eating experience like 
you they want the whole experience like they go to the restaurant and have the whole experience when really all you just need to do is put some nutrition in your body you know but they make it entertainment which could be self-confirmatory right but at the same time you would say maybe that's upgraded software like i don't know any thoughts <clears throat> no i don't see that i don't see that as having anything to do with software well, what do you think about that? The restaurants, like the whole experience thing, where you have to pay all the money and everything. Any thoughts? Well, yeah, you, you're there, you're there for entertainment. But is that the experience, or? Yeah. So, but but this guy's talking about something different, something better, like a higher experience, higher software than, in, whereas that's more just entertainment. Yeah. Right. Exactly. What about like a, a water park or something? Or a, a skateboard park? No, a skateboard park or a roller coaster park. Yeah, that's all for entertainment. <clears throat> but is it also experience or? But for <coughs> yeah, the, the experience of entertainment. Yeah. See, for for young children, that that's a very appropriate thing. It's a way of of uh, helping to maintain a high level. Uh, AQ, aliveness quotient. Yeah. What about like college? But well, that's what I call a creative project. That's anti-entropic part of the anti-entropic reordering function. Is that experience? Going or? to college, kidding? Well, it depends. But it, I mean, what this guy's it's, huh? it's it's main intention is is for for a creative project, anti-entropic project. It's like you you articulating the quadrant model. That's all a part of the anti-entropic reordering function, putting things together in more leverage molding, potentiating combinations. Yeah, well, this guy's talking about the funeral home experience, you know, any thoughts? Remember, that's what we were listening to yesterday, and that's what he's talking about, yeah. any thoughts? See, people want want want. That's a little bit different. People want uh, assistance in in working through the grieving process, and uh, a, a funeral procedure that assists them with that is more appealing than just disposing of the body. Well, you talk about transcending experience based thinking and stuff, right? And it does. See, sometimes it's there are times when it's a very useful part of the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't. No. All right. Must appeal to all our senses that if they were interviewed after leaving your place of business, they'd give you a broad smile and a thumbs up. McQueen also radically reinvented the customer experience. Most people in the furniture industry are order takers, he says. Potential customers make an appointment and show up, are greeted, and walk down a dark hall to an office where the vital information is collected then taken to a depressing room with a bunch of caskets and are asked which ones they want to buy and whether or not they want a ceremony. In order to consistently improve the experience, McQueen says a business owner or leader must ask himself and everyone who works within the organization a very important question every day. What is the real value that we're providing that allows us to charge the price we ask when people call upon us to serve them? Any thoughts? Yeah, People would rather be in a situation where, where the the business people personnel are respectful. They want to be around people who are respectful rather than people who are 
treating them as objects. McQueen says there was a lot of pushback from staff who didn't agree with the destination and constant reinvention he and his family had in mind for Anderson McQueen. Look, he says, there were a lot of older, long-term employees who didn't like it, and they aren't here anymore. Either they opted out, or we opted them out. How have constant radical change and reinvention affected top-line revenues and profits at Anderson McQueen? According to McQueen, as recently as seven years ago, when we really embarked on our reinvention efforts, we were handling about 900 funerals each year. Today, he says, we're doing more than 2,000, and in the process have grown our market share from 9% to more than 18%. Invariably, when highly talented and determined people who are committed to growing their businesses witness the positive effects of reinvention, they become addicted and become serial reinventors. Bill McQueen is no exception. We're committed to change and growth, he says. That might take the form of acquisitions, regional growth, horizontal expansion by moving into other life event areas like weddings and anniversaries. He's careful to point out that all moves depend on having the right people in place. He does. See, again, and I see it, it's, it's, uh, people like to be in a, in a, in a mutually respectful um, setting rather than an objectified setting. Mm, it doesn't? Let's do that. Uh, it, it, it appears that if, if we have an option, we always would uh, be choose to be in a place where the software is of a of a, up the hierarchy of software. Yeah. Um, ready? So this is a uh, Bible in the psyche. Remember that book that we were doing. <clears throat> Something wrong with my freaking uh, phone. It's not working too well. Like fucking right now. I'm trying to use the YouTube and it's not fucking. Uh, Gideon, Samson, and Ruth. Joshua. The promised land was a gift from Yahweh to the Israelites, and yet it had to be conquered. It was not a gift freely given, which the receiver may accept or decline. It was a command to take the land of Canaan. It does. Those who declined were destroyed. Numbers 14 to 37. Psychologically, the promised land can be seen as an area of the unconscious, which the imperative of individuation requires to be assimilated by the ego. This area is specifically assigned to the ego by the self, but still must be conquered by the efforts of the ego. The it does. This whole scenario here before I have any thoughts. Land is not vacant but occupied. It is studied it is studded with fortified cities. That is, it contains defended unconscious complexes, which must be resolved before it can be assimilated. Joshua's conquest of Canaan is a symbolic picture of how to deal with the unconscious and its hostile com complexes under certain circumstances. Hey, Doss? Yahweh directs Joshua to enter Canaan and take possession of it. Quote, be strong and stand firm, for you are the man to give this people possession of the land that I swore to their fathers I would give to them. Only be strong and stand firm, and be careful to keep all the law which my servant Moses laid on you. Have the book of this law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may carefully keep everything 
that is written in it. Then you will prosper in your dealings. Then you will have the success. For go where you, for go where you will, Yahweh, your God, is with you. Joshua 1, 6 through 9. The growth, urge summon, the growth urge summons the ego to proceed and cautions it to follow dutifully the, the dictates of one's inner law, the innate design of one's being. Then the totality of the psyche will cooperate. Spies were dispatched to reconnoiter the land around Jericho and were sheltered by Rahab the harlot, Joshua. When you earn a degree with the University of Phoenix, we support you with career coaching for life, including personal branding, res- a man's first foray into the unconscious discovers the helpful anima. According to Ginsburg, quote, she had been leading an immoral life for 40 years, but at the approach of Israel, she paid homage to the true God, lived the life of a pious convert, and as the wife of Joshua, became the ancestress of eight prophets and of the prophetess Hulda. Also, she was an ancestor of Jesus, Rahab. Any thoughts? What do you think of her representing like the feminine principle and everything? It does. Well, see, this is all this is all a new discipline for me. I, I've never looked at the. Yeah, well, I would say I would say too, I would say too that her significance would be like you know a lot of a lot of these cultures look down upon the women, but in this culture, yeah, she's a hero, you know, the prostitute, and that's kind of like the subversion that the Hebrew Bible does. That kind of like I think the the right-wingers kind of miss out on and forget that it's kind of subverting and, and breaking people out of the, you know, superior, inferior. It's putting the woman as a hero. Like, any thoughts? No, yeah, it could be. You know, the, the oppressed. End quote. Rahab <clears throat> corresponds to the soul of Israel, who shares its 40 years of wandering. She is analogous to Sophia, who fell into the darkness of matter, the wilderness, and had to be rescued. Any thoughts? No. So Sophia's like the aeon that, you know, like she's wisdom. And they, they talk about her in the Bible, you know, and she's like, and they, they like the Gnostics say that she was the reason why the world was created, which is kind of like a negative thing, though. Like, you know, she went into the world of matter and it created the world, but that's kind of like a negative thing that the world was created because matter is kind of like negative. Like, any thoughts on that? So I guess it would be like, you know, the idea like wisdom is, is good, but it's not the supreme. Like supreme would be transcending matter. Like any thoughts? Yeah. Transcending the interpersonal. Simon is said to... Transcending the interpersonal the transpersonal, right? Would be the way you would see it. But right. I would go so far as to say, I mean, I, I think that yours is a little bit watered down. I would say go so far as to say maybe even like literally, like any thoughts? Well, that's a possibility. Have found his female companion, Helen, a manifestation. You're still working within the paradigm of, you know, energy and like, you know, but I don't know, like, yours is an interesting paradigm, but it might not be sufficient. Like, any thoughts? It's not the, it's not the paradigm of energy. No, I know, but, but still, any thoughts on it? No. Sophia, in a brothel entire. Yeah, my relations between is... Rahab and Israel. My only thought is you're you're gen you're generating growing your own feathers. Are mutual and reciprocal. Rahab protects the Israelite spies, and in return she is saved. This is a typical theme of anima rescue stories, e.g., Jason and Medea, Theseus, Theseus and Ariadne, etc. 
Among, patri among patristic writers, Rahab is a type of the church. As the church is the bride of Christ, so in legend, Rahab was the bride of Joshua, who is a type of his namesake, Jesus, Joshua. As the soul of Israel, Rahab is also the soul of the land which belongs to Israel. I am reminded of a dream dreamt by a Jewish man who had denied his Jewish origins. Quote, I am in Israel in an open field on a hill. The hill is shaped exactly like a woman's breast. On the very top of the hill, where the nipple would be, was a beautiful girl, blonde, blue-eyed. Maybe she was Jewish, maybe not. I fall in love with her and pursue her, calling on the telephone. She laughs and finally says, okay, stupid, come on over. Find a flight at a great price with no change fees. Book now on Kayak. I go to the hill and meet her there. Hey, does? expecting to have a sexual experience instead she tells me her story she is from elsewhere she married an orthodox jew but he was impotent and buried himself in religion neglecting her she turned to others and had affairs with men as i look at her she seems to be a lost soul drifting unquote this dream which followed a visit to israel pictures the dreamer's encounter with his lost anima whose fate had paralleled that of the collective whose fate had paralleled that of the collective soul of israel rahab scarlet thread the sign that all in her house should be spared was important symbolically to the church fathers. It served the same function as the blood daubed on the doorposts at the Passover and was considered to exemplify the saving blood of Christ. According to Clement, quote, they gave her, Rahab, a sign to this effect that she should hang forth from her house a scarlet thread, and thus they made it manifest that redemption should flow through the blood of the Lord to all them that believe and hope in God. End quote. Rahab is connected by her name. Hey, it does. What do you think about the 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 quote rules were made to be broken? Hey, does it? Yeah, well, that, that's just a simple, um, much more s simplified statement of the fact that rules are concessions. Once they serve their useful function, they're to be uh, broken. So you talk about the idea of like you know obey the order until you can transcend the order, right, or, or until you be one with the order, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's what that's what this whole that statement is all about. Rules are made to be broken. They're simply concessions. They're not absolute. But you said the other quote, like first you must serve an apprenticeship to orders before you can be one with the order, though. So you have to. You know, follow the orders, right? As as commitments or whatever. Yeah, that's. That, but not necessarily though. Like like when I was playing when I was playing basketball, Dad told me don't shoot like the coaches say, shoot sideways, and I did, and I was the best shooter. You know, any thoughts? Yeah, see, you you discovered a higher order. I mean, it doesn't. You didn't need the coach's rules. I mean, it doesn't. With the primordial mother monster mentioned in Isaiah 51, 9 and 10. Quote, awake, awake, clothe yourself in strength, arm of Yahweh. Awake, as in the past, in times of generations long ago. Did you not split Rahab in two and pierce the dragon through? Did you not dry up the sea, the waters of the great abyss, to make the seabed a road for the redeemed to cross? Unquote. In this passage, Rahab is a personification of the watery chaos existing prior to creation. She corresponds to the Babylonian Tima, who was slain by Marduk in the creation of the world, 
It is the hero's task to slay the primordial aspect of the Great Mother, Dragon, which in many myths has the effect of rescuing the anima. As Neumann puts it, Fucking commercial. Hey, 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 does it? No. Um, just like slaying TMI and stuff, like. Yeah, and Rahab's yeah, also. See, that's, what, uh -huh. that's what rules and laws do. They they slay the dragon. They they impose some order so that chaos doesn't reign. Which the male undergoes in the course of the dragon fight includes a change in his relation to the female, symbolically expressed in the liberation of the captive. Well, the thing is also, yeah, like the female sometimes often, like in mythology, represents more nature and something that needs to be tamed, more chaos. You know, any thoughts? I didn't know that. Yeah, like even like the the father gods, like the sky gods, they they till the you know the, they till the field, which is the mother, you know, the earth. It's something that needs to be like controlled, dominated, the material, you know. Any thoughts? No. It's interesting. Power. In other words, the feminine image extricates itself from the grip of the terrible mother, a process known in analytical psychology as the crystallization of the anima from the mother archetype. <clears throat> something, unquote, something of this sort of transfer, something of this sort of transformation takes place in Israel's relation to the feminine with the conquest of Canaan. Rahab, the mother. So you think of like how the Chinese would bind the feet of the women, right? <clears throat> hey, yeah, that's it. I never thought of that connection. It doesn't. No. Esther is transformed into Rahab, the helpful woman. <clears throat> she is rescued from the enemy, and according to legend, true to the archetypal pattern, she marries Joshua. <laughs> she marries Joshua, her rescuer. Does this sound like courtship and rescuing a young woman from her mother? Maybe. It does. Just as the 40 years of wilderness wandering was inaugurated by a rite of entry, the crossing of the Red Sea, so a rite of exit crossing the River Jordan, marks the termination of the wilderness experience. The transition was signaled by the fact that mana ceased to fall, Joshua 5, 12. And we hear no more about the guiding pillar of, cl pillar or of cloud and pillar of fire. The theme of crossing a river, a border, or even a highway comes up in dreams to indicate a major transition from one level of consciousness to another. Hey, Doug? Yeah, that's, that's very consistent. <clears throat> Such a crossing often requires evidence of one's identity and commitment. With the crossing of the Jordan, this evidence is presented by the mandala of 12 stones set up at Gilgal. The word Gilgal means ring of stones according to the jerusalem bible page 279 note e <clears throat> hey, no. joshua 4 20. you hear about the promo what, that what do you think about the idea of like distractions and he does well see that's uh, that's just another form of chaos, distractions. <clears throat> if you don't have an order you depend on, if you're not obeying orders, you can be easily distracted. What about like wandering? Well, that's another form of being distracted. 
wandering rather than wondering. What, what about what about contemplation? saying that is there is an alternation of day and night 
The circular movement thus has the moral significance of activating the light and dark forces of human nature, and together with them all psychological opposites of whatever kind they may be. It is nothing less than self-knowledge by means of self-brooding. In Sanskrit, this is called tapas. Unquote. It does? No. I remember, what was I the word? Tapas. <clears throat> I remember I remember you would say that the reason why you circumambulate is because it's like a meditative practice where you, where you let go of your thoughts, but he's kind of saying a different thing. But, you know, because you're like stepping, it's like meditation, and then you can break free of your thoughts, but he's saying like it's like a process of getting in touch with the self and ego. I don't know, any thoughts? Yeah, it could be. Uh, but uh, anyways, I was, I was going to say though, you know, like w when I discovered the quadrant model, like I knew it, like it wasn't that I was open to that possibility. Like it was something like that I knew, like it was in my soul. Like I knew that reality was that way. I knew it had to be that way. And it's like reality didn't just conform to it. Reality is that way, but it's like, it's like there, there's a conjunction between my mind and existence, you know? And, and that's why I was so receptive to it. Cause I, that was a part of me. It was, it was ingrained in my soul and my being. But like with you or with a lot of, you know, maybe other, some other people, it's not so much that way. Why would that be? Any thoughts? I don't know. Any thoughts on We each have our own, we each have our own journey to the discovery of oneness. Right. And that came from Alchemical Studies, Collected Works 13, paragraphs 38 and following. The sevenfold action alludes to the seven planetary spheres of antiquity, each ruled by one of the seven planetary deities. The complete seven circuits com implies integrating all seven archetypal factors symbolized by the planets. With the seventh comes the shout announcing wholeness, and the complex collapses. Jericho and the other captured cities were placed under the ban of, by Yahweh. The town and everything inside it must be set apart for Yahweh under a ban. Joshua 6, 15. It does? You talked about the circling of Jericho being like, you know, you, you, you're working through the process, you know, you're up against the wall until you can let go when the wall falls, right? And that's a float, right? Or any thoughts? Yeah. See, it's hard for me to remember what my insight and understanding was when we were in the process of discovering that. What, what, that what, what probably getting, is accurate. What are you getting from this, any thoughts? Nothing yet. The ban, haram, in Hebrew, or haram in Hebrew, but haram presumably in um, Islam, since this is the history of Islam as well at this point in history, the ban, haram in Hebrew, makes over all that is captured to God. Hence, men and animals are killed and booty given to the sanctuary. The ban is a religious act, a rule of holy war. Failure to observe it is sacrilege, and its punishment is severe. Unquote. When Achan defied the ban and kept some booty for himself, Joshua 7, 1, the consequence was Israel's defeat at Ai. Yahweh tells Joshua, quote, They have taken what was under the ban, stolen and hidden it, and put it into their baggage. That is why the sons of Israel cannot stand up to their foes, why they have turned their backs on their enemies, because they have come under the ban themselves. I will be with you no longer unless you remove what is under the ban from among you. Joshua 7, 11 and 12. It does. Resort to such extreme measures reflects the dangerous nature of all Canaanite things to invading Israel. 
Israel is in the process of establishing its identity. Not only must it conquer the land of Canaan, but also it must impose its identity on the land. There are many historical examples of a country's conquering culturally its physical conquerors. Similarly, in the psychology of the individual, there are times of transition when it may be fatal to allow any consideration to the standpoint one is trying to overcome. And all. Hey, Doc. nothing condition must prevail only thus is the connection with the self preserved so we're in that kind of a battle right now with the coronavirus <clears throat> we are a designer toy store in chicago so like what do you think about uh well i was listening to the rabbi saying that like jews complain and he was like but you're seeing that as a good thing complaining like any thoughts Said I see complaining as a good thing. No, I was saying he said that he was seeing complaining as a good thing. Any thoughts? Well, see, my understanding of complaining is that's so much a part of creating a story about the facts. But but also it's like it's not being content at least, right? And it's trying to get to like a deeper, and it's not being settled, right? Like any thoughts? necessarily See, complaining usually is something that a person enjoys it's a form of self-entertainment entertaining the self yeah. Yeah, that's a... no radical shift from nomadic to settled life during the wandering and the conquest Moses and Joshua provided central leadership, but now, in the so-called period of the judges, there was a breakdown of centralized authority. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And it hey, does? No. Every man did as he pleased. Judges 17, 6. The conquest of Canaan was a partial, fluctuating, and disorderly process. Victories were followed by did what, did what displeases Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Then Yahweh's anger flamed out against Israel, Judges 3, 7, and 8, and he allowed them to be enslaved by their enemies. Again, after after each relapse comes repentance, and the Israelites cry to Yahweh, who raised... What was that? That's an example of the chaos that comes and the discord that results from not having, not obeying an order that they depend on, not having a structured... Order. Is up a leader to or judge to rescue them. The fluctuating and chaotic time of the judges symbolizes the vicissitudes that accompany the ego's efforts to assimilate a major area of the unconscious. The outcome is often ambiguous for some time, as it remains uncertain whether the ego will assimilate the complex or the complex will assimilate the ego. The lack of a central authority reflects the weakness of the ego during the transition from one mode of life to another. Lacking a stable ego, reliance must be placed on sporadic, intermittent revelations from the self, represented by the charismatic judges who emerged in time to in time of need to rescue Israel from its oppressors. One such judge was Gideon. At the time of Gideon's call, Israel was oppressed by the Midianites and subject to Baal worship. Yahweh directs Gideon to pull down the altar to Baal, belonging to your father, and cut down the sacred post at the side of it. Then build a carefully constructed altar to Yahweh your God, Judges 6, 25 and 26, and allow a holocaust 
and allow a holy cause to sacrifice. This is a grave matter. The near God image is demanding that the old God image be destroyed. And he does. Yeah, he's just using that as an illustration that uh, at that point in Israelite history, they relied upon the judges to to define and maintain an order because the ego wasn't yet strong enough. Individual ego must be the agent of that action. Although the working of God can be perceived in human history, individuals must take the responsibility for effecting that work. They must become the carriers of the divine drama and suffer personally and concretely the consequences of God's actions. It is therefore understandable that when Gideon was ordered by Yahweh to take up arms against Midian, he, Gideon, wanted to be certain that this was indeed God's will and not an inflated, grandiose notion of his own. Gideon requested a sign from God. Quote, if you really mean to deliver Israel by my hand, as you declare, see now I spread out a fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is left dry, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have declared. And so it happened. Judges 6, 36, unquote. The sign was also manifested in reverse. It does. Yeah, that's very interesting. I never, I never interpreted that uh, as a sign of, of wanting to make sure it's coming from an in intuited or inspired thought, or whether it's coming from uh, the ego. Any other sir? No. Let the fleece alone be dry, and let the there be dew on the ground all around it. And God did so that night. Judges thirty-nine and forty. Dew is an important symbolic image. In Proverbs, a king's favor is like dew on the grass. Proverbs 19. Hey, does? The Messianic Psalm 72 speaks of the promised king welcome as rain that falls on the fleece. Verse 6, rather. Alternate reading. Moses says, quote, May my teaching fall. Oh, is that a synchronicity? Yeah, uh, sort of. And yeah, does it? No. Not necessarily. It's kind of different than a synchronicity. It's more like a miracle, but all right. Do, like showers on fresh grass, <clears throat> like rain on the turf. For I proclaim the name of Yahweh. Deuteronomy 13, 32, 2. And on Hosea, Yahweh pronounces, I will fall like dew in Israel. He shall bloom like the lily. Hosea 14, 6. Hey, does? No. Aranias identifies Gideon's due with the Holy Spirit. Augustine equates it with the grace of Christ and makes this observation, quote, What meant Gideon's fleece? It is like the nation of the Jews in the midst of the world which had the grace of sacrament, not indeed openly manifested, but hidden in a cloud or in a veil, like the dew in the fleece. The time came when the dew was to be manifested in the floor. It was manifested, no longer hidden. Christ alone is the sweetness of dew. Hey, it does.
Gideon's initial army of 32,000 was drastically reduced by Yahweh. First, all who were fearful were dismissed, leaving 10,000. Judges 7.3. This number was then reduced to 300 by an interesting device. Quote, take them down to the waterside. All those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps, place these on one side. With the 300 who lap the water, I will rescue you and put Midian into your power. Judges 7. 4 through 7. This process of... It does. No. Collection is an extraction procedure. According to the formula, 32 minus 10 minus 3. The extractions from the total of 32, first the number 10 and then the number 3. The final criterion for selection is the dog-like behavior of lapping water. In Psalm 68.23, Yahweh says he will arrange for the tongues of your dogs to lap their share of the enemy. Commenting on this passage, Augustine remarks, quote, For it has not indeed to no purpose, not without a great mystery, that Gideon was bidden to lead them alone, who should lap the water of the river like dogs, as carrying, unquote, as carrying either the dog had negative associations in the Old Testament, but as a watchdog and sheepherder, a very positive one. Young writes, quote, In the history of symbols, the dog is distinguished by an uncommonly wide range of associations. The not It does? No. The parallel, Logos Canis, is reflected in the Christian one, Christus Canis. Handed down in the formula, quote, Gentle to the elect, terrible to the reprobate. A true pastor. St. Gregory says, quote, or what others are called the watchdogs of this flock, save the holy do do save the holy doctors. In the hieroglyphics of Horopolo, emphasis is laid on the dog's power to spread infection. Because of its rich symbolic context, the dog is an apt synonym for the transforming substance, unquote. Gideon's forces were assured of victory when spies overheard the dream of a Midianite, a cake, quote, a cake made the barley bread came. I'm sorry. Quote, a cake made of barley bread came rolling through the camp of Midian. It reached the tent, struck against it, and turned it upside down, and the tent lay flat. Judges 7.13. Such a dream in which an inanimate object affects a deliberate action indicates the activation of the autonomous psyche, the self. It is then imperative for the ego to align its attitude in accordance with the activated self. Otherwise, it will be left flat. There's two more parts of this sentence in it. It does. <clears throat> no. Ruth. <clears throat> Samson. The story of Samson, Judges 13 to 16, is that of a community gone wrong. It begins with a wedding between Samson the Israelite and the daughter of a Philistine. In the midst of the wedding feast, Samson poses a riddle. Quote, out of the eater came what is eaten, and out of the strong came what is sweet. Judges 14, 14. This refers to the honeycomb Samson found in the carcass of the lion he had killed. Judges 14, 5 through 8. As with Oedipus, the riddle is the central issue of the story. And like Oedipus, Samson fails to address the deeper meaning of the riddle. What does it mean that out of the dead lion comes sweet honey? It signifies the transformation of the power principle. The spirit of Yahweh dwelled in Samson, allowing him to do great deeds of valor and vengeance when under the influence of intense effect. For example, Judges 14, 19. However, Samson was called to the communion, which required that he become conscious of the opposites, both power it does. <clears throat> and blood. He failed that test. The vengeance principle prevails throughout the Samson story. For this reason, his Philistine animal turned against him. 
Thus, it is the one-sided ego undone by the unconscious in its effort to promote the larger standpoint of wholeness. The synchronistic event of... Hey, thus? ...finding a honeycomb in the body of the lion he had killed was meant to inform Samson, the Nazarene, and man of God that it was his task to contribute to the transformation of God. From this perspective, the lion's death and Samson's defeat and death are symbolically equivalent. <clears throat> they both picture the transformation of the archetypal power principle. The communio Samson could not achieve in life occurs at his death as both he and the Philistines perish together. Judges 16, 30. Any thoughts? Yeah, the self has to die, I guess is what he's saying. Samson has analogies with both Mithra and Christ. Mithra sacrificed the bull and Christ carried the cross, the instrument of his own self-sacrifice. There are pictures of Samson carrying the gates of Gaza, Judges 16, 3, in the form of a cross. Blind Samson in prison turning the Milnia mandala in Gaza, Judges 16, 21, is an image of servitude to wholeness, an unconscious version of carrying the cross of the self. Aranius interprets Samson as a prefiguration of Christ. He does. Samson by the hand pre-typified John the Baptist, who showed to the people the faith in Christ and the house in which... I heard Karen Armstrong say that the meaning of it was, you know, out of like something so terrible, there can be honey. Like, you know, like a lion's very like beastly. It's kind of like me, like, you know, I, I became a fanatic, but out of it came honey. You know, it, out of something, it could be very scary, but out of, it's like Shiva too, like, you, you can become a fanatic, but then out of it can come, become, come honey, you know, like, be, be hot or cold, like any thoughts of that? signifies the world in which dwelt the various heathen and unbelieving nations offering sacrifice to their idols. Moreover, the two pillars are the two covenants. The fact, then, of Samson leaning, him, leaning himself upon the pillars indicates this, that the people, when instructed, recognize the mystery of Christ, end quote. Referring to Judges 14, 14, out of the eater came what is eaten, and out of the strong came what is sweet. Pisimelis says, quote, this is to be understood of the Son of God who after having long imitated the terrible lion in rebuking the world's sins, a little later when he instituted the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist, as his death drew nigh, turned himself into exceeding sweet honeycombs. End quote. Samson personifies the torturous process it does. of transformation of the power motive, lion to honey, Yahweh to Christ. The strong man is turned into the blind, defeated slave, who yet from his captivity in darkness destroys the old temple in preparation for the new and generates a sweet food for the soul. John Milton, who John Milton had personal familiarity with the archetypal image of Samson. His great final poems, Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, and Samson Agonistes, were written in total blindness and during intermittent attacks of gout. These lines of Samson... So listen to the rabbi, this rabbi talking about Samson, he was saying that... Um... That Samson, or, or but he didn't say it specifically Samson, but he said that Nazarites are actually sinners. So a Nazarite, someone who doesn't cut his hair and doesn't drink wine, and there's like you know debates among the rabbis, like in the Gemara or whatever, about what, what they think of Nazarites, and, and the conclusion they came up with is that, that they're actually kind of sinners. And and one of the things they said was because you know God made grapes and stuff, and the fact that they can't eat grapes, they're they're denying themselves of pleasure. And, but God wants us to have pleasure. Like, any thoughts on that? 
sounds like an attempt to, to be right and make somebody else wrong. Yeah, but 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 I see what they're trying to say is that is that like okay, you can try to become like a completely ascetic person, like not eating grapes and and not you know cutting your hair and stuff, and and that can be uh, <clears throat> like trying to be like super ascetic, but it could be self-confirmatory, right? Whereas you know, yeah, you can. You don't want to be like completely self-confirmatory or completely ascetic, and you can you can you can engage in the world. You don't want to be completely separate from the world. You can engage in the world, because being completely separate from it that can be self-confirmatory as well. So you yeah. you want to find like a medium path, right, or what? A higher path. Any of those? No, that's probably about enough for today. A uh, little one just finished the phone part about Samson. Okay. From the latter poem, our example of honey from the dead lion who had been Cromwell's polemist, <clears throat> God of our fathers, what is man that thou towards him with hands so various, or might I say contrarious, tempers thy providence through his short course, not evenly as thou rules, the angelic orders of inferior creatures, mute, irrational, and brute, nor do I name the men the common round. That wandering leaves about grow up and perish as the summer flee. Perica heads without name no more remember, but such as thou hast solemnly elected, with gifts and graces eminently adorned, to some great work thy glory, the people's safety, which in part they affect, yet toward thee these thus dignified thou oft. Amidst their height at noon, changest thy countenance, and thy hand with no regard of highest favors pass from thee on men. Or them or thee in service, nor only dost degrade them or remit to life obscure, which were a fair dismission, but throws them lower that thou dost exalt them high, unseemly falls in human eye. Too previous for the trespass or omission, oft leavest them to the hostile sore of heaven and profane their carcasses, to dogs and fowls a prey, or else kept up captive. Or to the unjust tribunals under change of times and condemnation of the ungrateful multitude. If these they escape perhaps in poverty, with sickness and disease thou bowest them down, painful diseases and deformed in crude old age, though not disordinate, yet causeless suffering, the punishment of dissolute days in fine, just to unjust alike seem miserable, for oft alike both come to evil end. So deal not with this once thy glorious champion, the image of thy strength and mighty minister. What do I beg? How hast thou dealt already? Behold him in this state calamitous, and turn his labors, for thou canst to peaceful end. Lines 667 to 709. Hey, does? <clears throat> no. All right.